0: Good morning. I'd like you to turn with me if you have your Bibles to First Corinthians chapter eight. Letter of First Corinthians was written by Paul to the church at Corinth in response to various problems that they had, Some of the problems Paul heard about from the family of Chloe, according to chapter one and verse 11, and he confronts those in the first six chapters. There's the problem of divisions in chapters 1 to 4. The problem of church discipline in chapter 5. The problem of lawsuits in chapter 6 verses 1 to 11. The problem of immorality in chapter 6 verses 12 to 20. Now, from that point on, the rest of the book is Paul responding to a letter he received from the church at Corinth asking him a variety of questions. And that transition point we find in chapter 7 and verse 1, where Paul says, now concerning the things about which you wrote. And he deals in chapter 7, in the first half, with a question about marriage, and then he complements that in the second half of that chapter with a question about the single life. And then we come to the second question as we come to chapter 8, where we read the words, now concerning the things sacrificed to idols. The question Paul is addressed about here is a question about whether one ought to eat meat offered to idols. Have you wrestled with that lately? That's not a question we're really bringing up often today. It, It may be a question in certain parts of the world. It's certainly not really a question for us in the United States today. So you may be saying to me, well, then why bother studying this chapter? And the answer is because as Paul answers this question, he gives us a perspective or a principle that applies to many questions that we do face today. In the first century, they sacrificed animals at the pagan temple much like the Jews did in the Old Testament at the temple. And so they would sacrifice the animals, and after they sacrificed the animals, they would take part of the meat and give it to the pagan priests. The other part of the meat they would sell in the marketplace. So when you went down to Schnucks or Walmart or Food Giant or IGA and you looked in the meat department and you wanted a nice roast or you wanted to get a good steak, that meat had come from those animals that had been sacrificed in the pagan temple. And so the question that came up among the Christians at Corinth was this, if a Christian eats meat sacrificed to an idol, isn't he participating in some way in the worship of that idol? And there was one group in Corinth that said, yes, if that meat has been offered to idols, then it's wrong to eat it. To eat it would be a form of idol worship. I mean, if you eat that meat, you might as well be bowing down to the idol. And then there was another group in Corinth, and their answer to that question, should we eat meat offered to idols, was sure, it's okay. It's just meat. And the idol is just a piece of wood. So if, you, if, if it's offered to an idol, and since idols don't exist, there's really nothing negative about that. In fact, it's a good piece of meat. It would be wrong not to eat it. And so Paul is going to answer this question that arose in the church there. You say, well, I'm really glad we don't have problems like that. Well, let me make some parallels. Some of the great debates in the Christian church in the last 50 years have been things like, is it right to shop on Sunday? Or is it right to play sports on Sunday or watch TV on Sunday? Or is it right to mow your grass on Sunday? Or how about this question, should Christian women wear makeup? If you knew some of the things I think and don't say, you would you would applaud me? I'll move on. Can a Christian play golf on Sunday morning and score well? What about dancing? What about playing cards? what about Halloween some people say that's a pagan holiday so if you participate in some way in that pagan holiday you are somehow worshiping Satan by participating what about smoking what about going to movies what about having a beer Or a glass of wine with your meal? Now, some of you probably answered a few of those questions yes and a few no. Some of you answered all of those questions with a yes. Some of you probably answered all of those questions with a no. Which shows us that in these gray areas, there is a difference of opinion. Now, it's interesting, when you look to the Bible for answers in those kind of areas, there is no thou shalt not. The Bible tells us that in these areas, these are a matter of a person's conscience. And in Romans chapter 14, it actually tells us that one person can do these things, and it can be right for them, and another person can do the same thing, and it can be wrong for that person because it is against their conscience. And so in that same sense, the question raised in Corinth is still with us. Now, I know some of you would probably prefer me to come up here and raise those questions and then answer them with a one-word answer, yes or no. And there are churches and there are preachers that will tell you, when it comes to all these things, the answer is no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. But the Bible doesn't do that. And I want you to see how it doesn't do that as we look at Paul's answer here. What's interesting to me is, before he even begins to answer the question, he first wants to talk about the right perspective that we need to have as we approach this question. And that perspective is in verses 1 to 3, and I want you to notice. He says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Now, that phrase, we know that we all have knowledge, is probably taken as a quote from the Corinthians letter. Those who were saying it's okay to do this, it's okay to eat this meat, were saying in relation to this pagan meat problem, we all have knowledge. We all know that it's okay. In other words, they were saying doctrinally we're right, and we know we're right. Now, knowledge is a good thing. Hosea four six says, "My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge." And if anyone stressed knowledge, it was the Apostle Paul. He was always teaching doctrine. He praised the believers in Romans fifteen fourteen because they were filled with all knowledge. Knowledge is great. But knowledge is not the bottom line. The bottom line is love. And I want you to notice the rest of verse 1. We know that we all have knowledge. And then Paul says, knowledge makes arrogant. But love edifies. And that term, makes arrogant, is literally puffs up. And the word edifies means to... Build up. So knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. You see, this group that was saying we all know had a knowledge that lacked love. And knowledge without love just causes pride, conceit. It puffs up. You see, that kind of reaction says... I eat because I'm knowledgeable and you don't eat because you're ignorant. That's the response. But you see, knowledge is not enough. Later in this same letter, he's going to tell us in chapter 13 and verse 2, if I have all knowledge but I lack love, I'm nothing. And so Paul is saying there's another perspective besides I know. There is a higher principle than being right, and that principle is love. Love builds up. Love strengthens. Love establishes character. And Paul goes on in verse 2. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. This reminds me of my kids when they were little. I used to try to tell them how to do something or give them some information, and what would they say? I know. I know, I know, I know. Well, we do that with God. I, I know, don't, don't bother me, I know. They were saying, we know. And Paul says, in these areas... Of Christian liberty, if you think you know, it's a good sign that you probably don't. One of the things that characterizes true knowledge is humility. And I've learned from experience that the more that I get to know, the more I realize that I don't really know. One theologian defined knowledge this way. Knowledge is the process of passing from the unconscious state of ignorance to the conscious state of ignorance. So Paul says, if you think you've got all the factors figured in and you've taken everything into account and in your mind you know that you're right, you don't really know the way you ought to know because you have left out the most important element, and that is love. And knowledge without love is incomplete and useless, and even beyond that, it can be very harmful. Knowledge to be genuine knowledge has to have love. And Paul illustrates that in the next verse. Notice verse 3. But if anyone loves God, He is known by him. And when he talks about being known by God, obviously God knows everybody. But when he talks about being known by God, he's talking about having a relationship with God. And how do I have a relationship with God? You say, well, I use my intellectual prowess and my great knowledge. No. How do I have a relationship with God? Well, it starts with love. The thing that characterizes those who know God is love. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. How do we truly know God? Love. You cannot know God until you love God. And Paul is simply illustrating his point that love and knowledge are inseparable. They are cemented together. And so in matters of conscience, the fact that I know I'm right is not enough because there is a higher principle than being right. And that's the principle of love. Let's take, for example, let's take smoking, for example. <clears throat> let's say that I decide uh, that I am going to start smoking big black Cuban cigars. And not, not at home, I'm talking about up here on Sunday morning. That way, whenever I lose my place, I can just have an excuse to kind of. <laughs> I can't find anything in the Bible about tobacco. The closest thing I find is Genesis twenty four sixty four, where it says, Rebecca lit off her camel. So I am confident that it's all right. But what would happen if I start smoking big black Cuban cigars on Sunday morning? Well, half of you are going to leave and the other half are going to put the no smoking signs all around the room to, to stop me. You see, the bottom line is not whether it's right or wrong. The bottom line is how it affects other people. So our perspective should not just be, I know. Our perspective needs to be, I love. A right perspective doesn't come from my prideful knowledge. A right perspective comes from my humble love relationship with God. And so Paul starts out, before he even deals with the answer to this question, he starts out with our perspective. It's got to be a love perspective. And having established that, now he's going to answer the question. And the first part of the answer is the answer according to knowledge. Look at verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know That there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. As far as the issue of eating meat offered to idols, Paul says, you're right, we do know. We know that there's only one God and we know that there is no such thing as an idol. There is nothing more absurd than idolatry. And God points that out in Isaiah chapter 44, beginning in verse 14. He talks about a man who cuts down a tree, splits it in half, uses half of the tree to start a fire. Over the fire, he cooks his meat and warms himself. Then he takes the rest of the tree, half of which he's already burned, and he makes an idol out of the other half of the tree. And he bows down to the idol and he prays, Deliver me, for you are my God. And God says, He doesn't have the understanding to say, I am falling down before a block of wood. An idol is nothing. So, to the Corinthians who are saying, We know the answer to this question, Paul says, You're right. There's no such thing as an idol. But then he goes on in verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Now, the Greeks had innumerable mythological gods. Paul calls them so-called gods. They're they're all over the place. But, verse 6, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Now, this is one of those verses that, that if you look at this verse, it really has a comprehensive theology in this verse. He says that all things came from the Father, by the Son, and we exist through the Son for the Father. That's one of those verses that we could launch into this whole thing and spend a lot of time developing this because it really is, in essence, the whole of Scripture in a nutshell. But see, his point is this. Although the Greeks professed many gods and had many idols, the truth is that there is only one God. All things were created by him, no exceptions. And all people exist for him. No exceptions. What's his point? An idol is nothing. The Corinthians were right. And then Paul draws it to a conclusion down in verse 8. Notice what he says. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Food doesn't affect our relationship with God. So whether you do or don't eat doesn't have any impact on the things of God. In these areas of liberty, if you say no and I say yes, it doesn't affect either of our relationships with God. Doesn't make you better, he says. It doesn't make you worse. you're over here saying no to all those questions and think somehow god is more pleased with you you are wrong if you're saying yes in all these areas and somebody thinks you are less pleasing to god they are wrong doesn't affect your relationship with god so from a knowledge standpoint this is a simple question is it okay to eat meat offered to an idol The simple answer is, go ahead and eat. From a knowledge standpoint, from a biblical standpoint, from a theological standpoint, the answer is clear. Eat. But Paul wants us to see that being right is not the bottom line. You see, it's not enough to be right. So he, if that was true, then the chapter would stop right here. But there's more to the chapter. And he goes on to, to further develop the answer, and he gives us the answer according to love. And I think what he's telling us here is that when you look at this question through the perspective of love, you very well may come up with a different answer. Because love takes into account four things. And the first thing it takes into account is the individuality of others. Notice verse 7. He says, however, not all men have this knowledge. Hmm. They say in verse 1, we all know. Everybody knows. And Paul says, well, wait a minute. The reality is that everybody doesn't know. See, knowledge generalizes. Love individualizes. Knowledge says, well, everybody knows, and if they don't, they ought to. Love says, I know, but I also realize there are some other people that don't know. And I've got to be concerned about the people who don't know and that's what he shows us here uh, in in the rest of verse 7 notice what he says however not all men have this knowledge but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled some christians had been saved out of idol worship And they were not at this time able to eat that meat without the old associations that came with it. And why couldn't they eat? They couldn't eat because their conscience was weak. Their conscience needed to be developed. They needed further information. They needed to grow spiritually and get a stronger conscience so that they could handle that. But at this point in time, they weren't there yet. They weren't strong enough. You see, knowledge will fail to recognize that some people have a weaker conscience than I do. Love will recognize the spiritual level of other people. So first of all, love takes into account the individuality of others. Secondly, love takes into account my influence on others. Notice verse 8, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Food makes no difference. You have the right to eat, verse 9, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak okay to do it you have the right but be careful that your right doesn't stumble somebody else now how would my right my liberty stumble someone else well he tells us in verse 10 for if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple will not his conscience if he is weak Be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. Let's say you're strong and I'm weak. You go to a wedding at the pagan temple, you sit down and they're serving uh, filet mignon and you start chowing down. It's meat that was offered to an idol. I'm at the same wedding, I'm weak, I see you eating the meat. I say, well, if he or she can do it, I guess I can do it. And I do it, but it's against my conscience. You have therefore stumbled me. You see, for you it was right, but that wasn't the bottom line. The bottom line is you stumbled me. And you can apply that to any area of liberty. If, if you're strong and I'm weak and I see you drinking a glass of wine and I say, well, I guess I can do that, but it's against my conscience, then your action has stumbled me. So you see, love takes into account how my actions influence others now let me add a footnote here let me just clarify some things in verses 9 and 10 number one your conscience is not the Holy Spirit your your conscience is kind of like on your car you've got an engine light an oil light usually isn't on but when it comes on it's trying to tell you There's a problem. That's the way your conscience is. Your conscience comes on like an engine light saying, there's a problem here. But your conscience is not the Holy Spirit. Everyone has a conscience. Not everyone has the Holy Spirit. Even unbelievers have a conscience. That's why you run into unbelievers who are very conscientious Because they are sensitive to their conscience. And they follow rules and regulations. Sometimes more than Christians do. And the problem with that, understanding this, is that your conscience is not the Holy Spirit. You see, sometimes people say, God showed me that that was wrong. Therefore, it's wrong for you. No. God showed you it was wrong your conscience said it was wrong, that doesn't mean it's wrong for everybody else because they've got a different conscience than you do. See, that's not necessarily the Holy Spirit speaking. It may be your conscience speaking. Secondly, let me say this. Your conscience can be wrong. That was true in this passage. Those who said, we can't eat that meat because it's offered to an idol, and if we eat it, it'll be like worshiping the idol, they were wrong. Their conscience was wrong. Paul says, the right thing here to do is to eat, but some people's conscience were telling them they couldn't. Now, let me add a third thing. Even when your conscience is wrong, you have to follow your conscience. See, if your conscience is weak and hasn't developed in a certain area, Romans 14 tells you that it's a sin for you to go against your conscience. You need to learn, develop, grow, get comfort and confidence in this area so that your conscience agrees with that action and then go forward. Let me add another random thought in verses 9 and 10. I love the opportunity to have random thoughts. Um, It's important in understanding this passage to understand who the weak are. The weak are immature, uninformed Christians with a background that makes them extra sensitive in a certain area. I say that because sometimes we make the mistake of calling legalistic people weak. Legalistic people are not weak. You can ask them. They will tell you in no uncertain terms how mature they are. If they see you drinking a glass of wine, they're not going to order a bottle. Believe me. Those people are Pharisees. And you don't have to worry about stumbling a Pharisee. Jesus went out of his way to stumble Pharisees. There are also people, I think think they're Christians, but they are what I would call uh, the professional weaker brother. They kind of get into the spot and just camp here. And everything offends them that you do. And, and they never grow out of that, and they're not even attempting to grow out of that. They're just really enjoying that spot. So we need to understand who the weak person is in order to interpret this passage. And then let me add one more thing. Your actions in these gray areas should be determined by whether the weak will see you or not. See, Paul doesn't say, since a weaker brother might see you and stumble, don't ever do it. He doesn't say that. He says, if you look at verse 9, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block. Verse 10, for if someone sees you. You see, if your conscience doesn't bother you in a certain area then you can exercise that liberty. But you need to be careful where you exercise that liberty. For instance, if, you, if your conscience allows you to have a glass of wine and you choose to have wine publicly when you're on vacation because nobody knows you on vacation but you don't choose to do that publicly when you're at home, that would fit into the context of this passage. Now you say, well, that's hypocritical. No, that's loving. You see, when I'm on vacation, I'm not doing something wrong, I'm doing something right. What I'm choosing to do is give up that right when I'm at home out of love for how it might impact someone else. So Paul says, if you act on knowledge and not love, you may stumble someone who is is weak. And he kind of ties that into a whole package in verse 11. And he says, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. And then notice, the brother for whose sake Christ died. That word ruined means injured. The idea is that your actions are leading him into sin. And Paul is saying just because you know you're right, are you willing to injure that brother that Christ was willing to die for? Christ loved him enough to die for him. Don't you love him enough to give up some of your rights? for him so the second thing that love takes into account is my influence on others thirdly love takes into account the intricacies of sin notice verse 12 this is an interesting verse and so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak you sin against christ now that's very interesting Because the answer according to knowledge in verse 8 is it's not sin. The answer according to love in verse 12 is it can be sin. You see, I can actually do something that I know is right and it can still be sin. Because if you're hurt by it, I have sinned against you. And if I sin against you, I am sinning against Christ knowledge is great but it's not the bottom line and then a fourth thing that love takes into account is the implications of obedience notice verse 13 therefore if food causes my brother to stumble I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Paul says, I know it's right, but if that action causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. I know it's right, but knowledge is not the bottom line. Love is. So even though I know it's right, I will sacrifice my rights out of love for you. You know what i find interesting here if you look at a person a christian's life who is legalistic or who ha- understands liberty their actions may look a lot alike to you the difference is their motivation a legalistic person and a person who understands liberty are really poles apart because they have a totally different motivation for what they're doing The person who is legalistic says, I do this or don't do this because it's wrong. They are keeping a bunch of rules and regulations and really thinking that somehow they are pleasing God or they are closer to God because of what they are doing in these gray areas. The person who understands liberty has a totally different motivation than that. They say, yes, it's right. But I am going to give up my freedom. I am going to give up my rights for the sake of someone else. I am going to do for you what Jesus did for us. And that's love. The Bible says, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his brothers. Here's a great area where we get the opportunity to lay down our lives for a weaker brother to try to build him up in his faith and in his conscience. So when we look at this question, or any question that parallels this, there is a simple answer. The Bible tells you, yeah, it's okay to do it. But that question becomes more complicated when I understand that I need to look at it not just through the perspective of knowledge that puffs up, but through love that builds up. Before we close in prayer, I'm going to ask Gary Lockhart to come forward. I think it's raining, so you're not in a hurry to leave anyway. Hello, Gary. You can turn around and face that. I got word this morning that Gary got locked out of his garage, so uh, there was some question about whether he was going to get here on time. Uh, Gary's come forward this morning. Gary's been here for quite a while, and uh, Gary has come this morning to join this fellowship, become part of our church. And uh, Chad, if you wouldn't mind leading him out to the lobby, uh, after I close in prayer, I'll give you an opportunity to, to meet him and greet him and welcome him as a member of our church. Let, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, and I just thank you today For the reminder from this passage, you could have easily told us every detail of what to do and what not to do. But you have chosen to give us the choice in certain areas. And I think you do that because you know that that helps us to grow up as your children. And Lord, I pray as we deal with areas that may be sensitive for other people. I pray that you would keep us from prideful knowledge that says, I know I'm right, so I'm going to do it whether it bothers you or not. But that we would truly have the perspective of love that says, I know I'm right, but I'm willing to lay down my rights right now for the sake of somebody else. Father, teach us the maturity of that response and help us to do so to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.